They're at the gate, and they're off. Neck and neck, and down the stretch they come. You're listening to the Juicy Bits Podcast, uncovering the extraordinary in ordinary lives, with your host, Jasmine Richwall. Hi, and welcome to the Juicy Bits Podcast. My guest on the show today has been dubbed the voice that stops the nation. Greg Miles is a man who fell in love with horse racing when he was in primary school. You may not recognise his face if he walked past you in the street, but like most Australians, whether you're into horse racing or not, you'd probably recognise his voice from calling the Melbourne Cup. And this year, Greg is set to call the prestigious race for the 35th time, an experience that he describes as a privilege and an honour. I met Greg at a horse racing meet on a Wednesday afternoon down in Geelong. We chatted about what it takes to be a successful race caller and Greg puts it quite simply. He says it's the speed, pressure and accuracy that gives him the adrenaline rush every time when calling a race, especially on a big stage like the Melbourne Cup. Here's Greg. Uh, I think the first thing that has to happen is you have to be in love with horse racing. You have to be a a racing tragic, really, and that's what I was at a very young age. I was still in primary school when I realised that um, horse racing is what I wanted to do with my life. I never really thought at a young age that it would be uh, a a full-paid vocation, but I wanted wanted thoroughbred racing to be part of my life somehow. So um, I realised pretty quickly that I wasn't going to make it as a jockey, um, I was always going to be a bit too big and like my food too much. And you know, I always loved radio. I had a really fascination with radio from uh, a very young age. So I thought, what a great life it would be if you could um, merge the two of those. And that's what I set about trying to do as a, as a teenager. So I went to a radio school to learn some radio skills and I went to the racetrack to learn how to call races. And I just sat up in the back of the stands with my tape recorder and a pair of binoculars and made a lot of mistakes uh, until I taught myself how to do it. And that really is just mimicking the greats of the time and uh, listening to what they do and really being hyper-analytical of what you do yourself and, as I said, make a lot of mistakes and gradually it starts to come. So that's sort of in a nutshell how it started for me. And when you say mistakes, what sort of mistakes are they? Uh, Principally identification mistakes, calling a wrong horse perhaps, uh, not even knowing what it is. Learning the colours is a a skill that I don't think it comes naturally. It certainly didn't come naturally to me. I really pedal in the early days, pedalled really hard to try and remember the colours. So that's what a race caller does. He looks at the jockey silks, memorises colours and associates the horse's name with those jockey silks. And then it's a matter of immediate um, uh, retention and and being able to to call it as you see it in a split second. So that's a skill that has to be learnt and uh, and that's probably the biggest mistakes. And there are all sorts of other things, breathing issues and going too early, missing a run, inaccuracies, uh, just because you're struggling so hard to remember the colours, inaccuracies in, in, the, in the call, the mechanics of the call are pretty often. So uh, there's, there's a lot to... It takes a lot of time to get the skill set together to be able to be, you know, really calling properly. 
And at the beginning of your career, did you ever look back on tapes of your work, of the races that you called and thought, oh, I could have done it a little bit better and improved in that sense? Uh, absolutely, yeah. In, in fact, I still do now. Uh, and I think the, the, um, one of the secrets of, of going so long is to never really be resting on your laurels. And I, I really believe that you're only as good as your next call because that's the only call that the punter cares about, really. I'm not one to go back and, and listen to the calls for, for any other reason other than to be critical of them and uh, to think, what could I have done better than that? So I think that's important to... To me, it has been anyway, not, not to get too big for your boots. <laughs> and what equipment do you need to use when you're, in order to be a race horse hopper? Well, it's, it's changing, actually. Um, once upon a time, really all you needed was a pair of binoculars and a, and a, and a microphone stand so that they uh, would be nice and, and, and firm and balanced so that you didn't have to hold them much smoother view. Uh, and that's all I've had for years. But nowadays, um, you know, computers are a very big part of your, uh, of your uh, artillery at the racetrack now because it's, the information is just, you know, it's an information age and uh, horse racing's, you know, right at the top of usage of, of that. So I guess you know, that's what you need and a clear head. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you prepare for a race? Uh, it starts a couple of days out from the from the meeting. Once the uh, once the horses have accepted to race in that meeting, it's two days from from the meet, and then it's a matter of uh, doing the form, which means um, uh, assessing every horse individually and understanding where they might settle in the run, whether they're advantaged or disadvantaged by the class of the race and the conditions of the race that they're running in. And I find the best way to do that, uh, I'm a laborious note taker. I'm forever making notes and I have a computer program that maintains my notes on every horse that I see race and also the ones that I don't. And video watching. Uh, you spend more time preparing to go to a race meeting than you actually do at the racetrack, you know, um, because... I look at it this way when I explain it to people. How long does it take to prepare to get a race meeting done? Well, it depends on the size of the field. If I spend five minutes looking at one horse, and oftentimes you'd spend more than that, but that would say looking at its recent form, assessing the weights in that race, where it's drawn in the barriers, have a look at a replay or two, that might take me five minutes. Now, if there was ten horses in the race, there's 50 minutes. By the time you do one race, there's an hour. If it's an eight-race program, there's eight hours of preparation. And I've only spent five minutes looking at a horse. So it really, there is a lot of prep to get it done right, you know. I'm reminded of a, an old broadcaster from northern Queensland who said, it's the five Ps, you know. Preparation prevents poor performance. And I said, well, there's only four Ps. He said, you can imagine what the other one is. <laughs> when did he tell you that? How many years ago? That's a long, long time ago. <laughs> it's funny how we hold on to the most memorable quotes that take yeah. us through our careers. That's right. It's a good one. You can use it. I'd imagine that over time, the Melbourne Cup experience has changed for you. Uh, personally, it has. I, I was afraid of it when I first started calling. It's the most exciting thing that a race broadcaster can do. Any sports broadcaster, I think, would be, you know, would be thrilled to be able to call the Melbourne Cup. And I, I was. It was what I wanted to do for such a long time. And, and I've been very, very fortunate that 
uh, I've been able to call quite a lot of them and uh, I've called 34 and through different places, uh, television stations and radio stations and encores and what have you and uh, so to, to do 34 consecutive is you know, something I'm very, very proud of and uh, it takes a lot of luck as well. Uh, but it has changed for me and I, I'm glad it has because as I said earlier I was, I was petrified of making a mistake because that's the big stage and for, for the most part that's the only time the majority of people will hear what I do for a living and most of them will only care about the last little bit of the race so I, I felt that pressure that my entire year's work is is encapsulated in 15 seconds <laughs> for most people so that's that's the kind of the and and it's such an important race um the melbourne cup means so much to not only horse racing people but it means so much to this to every australian it's part of our dna it's part of our bringing up it's the melbourne cup you know and to be to be given the the onerous task of calling it i I really feel the pressure, I must say, um, and it's a great release when it's and a relief when it's over and done with. Uh, so, I, I guess it, it has got a little bit easier every year, and and now, as I'm and I'm older and more mature about it, I guess it's it's not the horrible onerous task that I thought of it when I was in my twenties. And as I've got a little bit older, I've I've got used to it I suppose I've, I've, and I understand the pressure and I can adapt to it a lot better than I could earlier. And how do you go about the crowd at Flemington because it's noisy on a big race day mm. but that three, three and a half minutes you could be at a stadium somewhere and it'd be even louder. Mm. And I think they, the, the, the crowd is more engaged in the race now than they used to be back years ago. Uh, because once they'd roar when they took off and they'd, they'd cheer when they could see them run past the stands the first time and then the, the, the noise of the crowd would dissipate a little as the horses ran away and into the distance and then you could feel it starting to build again when they could see them once more around the home turn and it built to a massive crescendo. But now there are big screens and television screens everywhere and the, and the crowd is really engaged in the race from start to finish and I can hear them, you know, rumbling along the whole way during the race. So it's a different experience and, and I guess for that reason I can put them out of my mind a little bit. The crowd isn't really an issue to me. They're, I mean, they're always there and it's a, to be honest, it's a bit of a buzz to be able to say they're off and 100,000 people go, raw we're with you. That's a bit of fun, that bit. Do you sleep well the night before? I do now, I must say I do, and I've never been one to take anything to help me sleep. I feel that if I've got my preparation right, uh, I can put my folder uh, in my race bag ready to go to m tomorrow to the track and I sleep comfortably because I've done everything I can do. So I do sleep well, which is really an important thing because it's a long day. And how many more Melbourne Cups do you anticipate calling? Uh, well, one more this year, and then I'll see how I go the year after. I'm not too sure. I mean, uh, there is there's an end game, obviously, uh, and I'm starting to think I'm 55, and it's time that maybe somebody else had a go. But I'm not sure. You know, I'll take it one year at a time, and I guess I, I hope that I've got the opportunity to call it rather than somebody else. <laughs> I read in an interview once that there was a reference made that 
back in the day when you were to call a race, you'd have to paint the picture for a blind person. Is that the case and has that evolved and changed? It certainly was the case and it, and it definitely has evolved uh, because there's a huge audience now that sees the race as well as the broadcaster does, sometimes even better. Um, when I first started calling, uh, the majority of the audience would be radio listeners, clearly. Apart from those on the track, I wasn't calling to them. My audience was pretty much a radio audience. Now, my audience is f far more a television audience. So I've been mindful of that. And I think there have been gentle massagings of the, of the way I call. And, um, and sometimes I'm even starting to evolve into watching and calling off the TV set when the shots are good enough. Sometimes I see better with my binoculars. Sometimes the TV monitor sees them better than me. And it's just a matter of mixing and matching uh, that through a race broadcast. So I found that a little bit difficult to, to get used to, but it's something that's, um, that is going to become more and more prevalent uh, in uh, you know, future generations. So I think there'll be a lot more calling off the TV. So it has, it has changed a lot. The old days, that was a call it as if you were calling to a blind man, but now they can all see pretty much. You're listening to the Juicy Bits Podcast. Uncovering the extraordinary in ordinary lives with your host, Jasmine Richwall.